0: Welcome back to P.S. Editors Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. The recent rise of right-wing populism in the West is often blamed on globalization and national government's loss of authority over domestic affairs, including their borders. And yet anti-establishment nationalist parties are benefiting even where the economy is outperforming regionally and worldwide. A case in point is Germany, where unemployment is lower and growth stronger than at any time since the fall of the Iron Curtain. And yet, in September 2017, Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD, became the first far-right party to enter the Bundestag since the end of World War II.
1: Angela Merkel has been re-elected for a fourth term, but it's a hollow victory given the pummeling that she and her former coalition partners received and the success of the far-right nationalist Alternative for Germany party. The AfD, which promised to fight an invasion of foreigners, seems to have capitalised on a backlash over Mrs Merkel's decision to open Germany's borders to over a million migrants and refugees in 2015.
0: And since the election and the reformation of Angela Merkel's grand coalition with the Social Democrats, the AFD has benefited further from its status as the largest opposition party. My guest today is Dalia Marine, a professor of economics at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich and a fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We'll discuss Germany's populists, where they came from, the factors underlying their rise, and whether their brand of politics is here to stay. Hi, is this Dahlia?
2: Yes, this is Dahlia.
0: Hi, this is Greg Bruno at Project Syndicate. Thanks for joining us today at PS Editor's Podcast.
2: I'm pleased.
0: Well, we are as well, and let's dive right into the conversation, if we could. I want to start with an overview of today's political landscape in Germany, much in the news. In last year's parliamentary election, the AFD party won 12.6% of the vote, which was the best showing ever for a right-wing political party in Germany's post-World War II era. Now, in your most recent PS commentary, you argued that for us to understand this outcome, we need to look at Germany's economic history. So if you could, just briefly walk us through what's happened to the German economy since the fall of the Iron Curtain, and how has that affected German politics today?
2: Yes, in the 90s Germany was doing very badly. This was the time when uh, the the Iron Curtain fell and so people were saying okay, the opening up to, uh, uh, to the communist countries made Germany sort of sclerotic. And um, so, during this period, uh, Germany was called by some people the sick man of Europe. Unemployment was tremendously high and so on. Now, what we find in our our book is the opposite. Actually, what we find is that the liberalization of trade with uh, the former Eastern uh, communist countries actually uh, had a profound uh, rejuvenating effect on the German economy. I would say there was a big turnaround because Germany went from a high-wage, high-cost country to a low-wage, low-cost country without losing its big advantage, namely to produce high quality.
0: So that, I mean, that's interesting, that's some of the history uh, that explains the strength of the German economy. But let's fast forward now to the uh, 2017 elections, when the Alternative for Deutschland party gains a extremely large, historically large share of the vote. First, before we get into the specifics of why that happened, I wonder uh, if you can talk about um, some of the things that, that I believe you're suggesting didn't contribute to it. Uh, the traditional issues like job displacement and import competition or other byproducts of globalization. Germany had a very strong economy in in 2017. It continues to be strong. Were these issues uh, that I just mentioned simply not uh, a factor in, in the election and the rise of populism, or were they simply not as big as they've been in other countries?
2: Both, I would say. It it wasn't as big. Uh, so this was one thing because unemployment during this period, unemployment kept on declining. So what we find in the studies is that uh, unemployment has an effect on, on voting behavior. So if unemployment is increasing, uh, that would have contributed to, to, uh, to a polarization. But during this period, it, Germany had a declining unemployment rate, so that cannot be a contributor. So that this is very interesting, because we, we find in our book that there is a high correlation between... Um, the votes for the AfD, the right-wing party in Germany, Uh, there is a high correlation of municipalities that voted for the AfD in uh, 2015 and the the share of votes for the Nazi party in, in the 20s and 30s. So there is a historical correlation between the two, while the share of immigrants in a municipality Actually, is negatively correlated with the vote for the IFD. Although this uh, correlation is not significant, but it, it does show that immigration is a big topic in the in the political debate and in the campaign. While when you look at at the actual numbers, it doesn't seem to support
0: this. So, in municipalities um, that voted. In in a high turnout for for the the AFD, uh, historically also voted for the Nazi Party back in the 20s and 30s. But in these same areas, or or potentially in other areas where the percentage of immigrants was high, support for the populace declined. Is that what you're what you're saying?
2: Yes, that's what came out. Yes. Interesting.
0: And so, what's the theory as to why that's the case?
2: So basically, I mean, there are two theories why why people vote for populist parties. One is the economic hardship. So basically, this is the view that is, uh, is, is, is 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 taken by economists and political scientists that when a group is, uh, I mean, we know that trade leads to has distributional effects. It leads to losers and winners. And so globalization leads to losers because some of them we lose. And uh, and so so economists and political scientists say that. Losers that losers from globalization tend to vote for right-wing parties. Now, this this actually didn't happen in Germany, so there must be something else. So why is there an AfD? So uh, the other view is that it's history. It's basically uh, there is a there is a basic um, cultural norm in a, in the population that dates back very far back in in, in history. And this hatred gets activated um, by certain events. In in this case, uh, it it is the IFD, because the IFD started to become a populist party in, 2000, in the 2015 elections. Before, it, she, the IFD was not. It was basically a, a party that was against the Euro and a party that was against bailing out Greece, but they, di- they, they didn't have any nationalistic um, connotations. So that happened. Uh, when a new leadership in the party took over and they started to become xenophobic. Mm-hmm. And this xenophobic uh, supply of xenophobic feelings uh, met a xenophobic tendency in the population that persisted over, over generations. And so this, um, this is how it, it, it is explained. So a, a, a very interesting uh, paper that looked at anti-Semitism over 600 years in Germany.
0: I found this stat to be particularly interesting, that xenophobic attitudes can last for centuries, as you right. noted.
2: Centuries, yes, it's amazing. So what they find is basically they, they look, as an indicator for antisemitism, they look at programs uh, in the Middle Ages. So they have data on programs against Jews in the Middle Ages, and they use these data to show, basically, that um, these uh, programs in the Middle Ages reliably reliably predict um, attacks on Jews in the 20s and 30s, attacks on Jews, deportations to uh, concentration camps, uh, attacks on synagogues, and so on. So this is 600 years, so so it's, it's, it's quite it's it's striking i have to say it's striking actually there is also a study for this is not not only germany i don't want to blame germany because uh, we, you also see it in spain for instance in spain since uh, since 1400 uh, since, uh, there are no jews in spain but in uh, the, 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 there is a game that children play it's called killing jews uh, around eastern time And uh, and so they played, in spite of the fact that uh, Jews are absent from these countries in centuries.
0: Interestingly, though, in Germany's case, this wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, after World War II, the introduction of the basic law was meant to curb extremists' ability to unify and mobilize politically. And underpinning this law was was this decades-long process um known as coming to terms with the past or in German and uh, Vergangenheitsbewältigung. I don't know how my pronunciation is in German. <laughs> you know that process uh, has has throughout German's modern history played a defining role in uh, you know post-war education systems, literature, culture uh, and and how we talk about history more broadly. But do you think that AFD's rise and its support in these areas that you pointed out that once once had strong support for Nazis Is evidence uh, of the limits of this idea that it's possible to impose a state-sanctioned effort to overcome the past?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think yes. I think uh, it helps if the state declares publicly that it, it has a great disgust for this party and the German parties do so. It helps, it helps. And it also helps that it, it declares that, uh, that uh, we are committed to our Jews, as the German government says. There, is a, there are big efforts now um, that uh, to see how one can deal with this problem, because, you know, I mean, statistics show that the, the amount of anti-Semitism hasn't actually increased. What has increased is the expression of anti-Semitic uh, uh, feelings because, uh, because of the Internet and the social media. So suddenly you see it on paper, or on digital uh, pages, the hatred that is is still, a, still there in the, in, the, in the population. And that came as a big shock uh, because basically everybody thought in Germany we are doing all the best to get rid of this. And... Um, Yeah, so I think there is now a major attempt. Uh, The government installed uh, somebody who is responsible to cope with anti-Semitism in the country. There is a beauftragter, as it is called. Uh, So there is somebody responsible for these uh, these things in in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so we will see what what will happen. But basically, you know, when you look at this, there is a theory. Where is this coming from? And this is uh, this is a, a theory of cultural transmission. so how how does that happen that over generations this hatred gets transmitted and it's basically the, 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 the in the family in the in children learn from their parents and the parents have their norms and they transplant their norms norms in their children. So when you want to cope with this, you have to start there. you know, basically you have to start where the where the education, um, you know, I mean, I was recently in Berchtesgaden, which is um, where Hitler had his second uh, uh, residential uh, government residence. It's okay. in the mountains near, near Munich. And they have, a, they have a, a documentary there. And when I went through, I haven't seen this before, but when I went through, there was a little child book child book that has been um, uh, that has been created by 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 the Nazis and when you look at it I mean these are pictures hmm. that go so deeply you know I mean uh, of anti-semitic tra- trades yeah. so, yeah. uh, so it's very deep so I think when you want to uh, when you want to cope with this this will need to go to the schooling system and um,
0: I was just going to say that you know there's there's a histori- there's a historical connection uh, you know in what some sociologists would call collective memory is hard to uproot, but there's also a political piece here. I mean, part of Germany's post World War II efforts to uh, overcome the past, I think had had the uh, you know the. the the perhaps, uh, as we look at it from the, from, through the lens of populism, the negative uh, ability of suppressing nationalism and subsuming sovereignty that has now uh, become part of the European Union narrative. And for those looking for alternatives and uh, more of a German narrative or a, a German history, AFD is really the only party questioning the bargain that's been established.
2: Yes, yes. Yes, um, you know, but you know this historical study that I cited before. They also find that municipalities and cities that had a stronger exposure to long-term, long-distance trade were also those who um, who were less, in in which uh, the transmission of hatred was less. So that suggests that. Having a, a, a society opening up to trade is actually good for coping with with hatreds and xenophobic feelings mm. because uh, basically the, the the theory goes like that. The more this is actually a theory that this has been proposed by sociologists and psychologists. Uh, it's basically the theory of intergroup contact. So the more contact you have to foreigners. The more your hatred gets reduced because you have actual experience with these people, and you find out that they are just normal people, and they, you might like them. And so, so actually, the cont- this contact theory ex- uh, suggests that it's good if you have exposure to uh, immigration and exposure to trade uh, to cope also with the fo- form of. Uh, of uh, um, historical an- anxieties and xenophobic feelings.
0: Right, which might actually explain the findings uh, that you cite regarding areas with high immigrant numbers uh, actually not, vo- not supporting AFD.
2: Yes, exactly. Actually, there is another study uh, on Brexit, which has been undertaken by economists from the University of Warwick. And they also find that who supported the, the Brexit vote? So, and they ask how much of it was um, uh, trade and immigration, and actually they find a very low influence, uh, they find some support for this, but it only explains a low uh, low share of the voting for Brexit. What, um, what mattered for Brexit uh, was um, uh, education uh, was whether you belong to the manufacturing sector. In spite, and When you look at the Brexit, the discussion before the vote, the debate was only about immigration. Everybody discussed that these immigra- the immigrants are the reason why we have no control over immigration. And that's why we have to get out of, of, of uh, the European Union. But uh, when you look at the actual voting behavior, this, this did not matter. What mattered, actually, there is there is one effect that basically, because Britain was, the, besides Sweden, the only country that opened up the labor market to the Eastern European countries, and they entered the European Union. Germany and Austria didn't do this. So they had a big inflow of Polish immigrants. And so these immigrants from Eastern Europe, they had a higher share of immigrants from Eastern Europe. As uh, in, in, um, support, uh, so supported the vote for for the Brexit. Uh, so there was so so. But what that suggests is that the political scientists and economists are not wrong. That if a group gets hurt by immigration, uh, they will they will vote uh, uh, for a party that says it's against immigration. So th- this is not surprising.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to bring it back to uh, current events and bring this conversation full circle. We recently had Mark Leonard, who's the director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, here on the podcast. And he argued that the future of European populism will unfold in 3 one of three ways. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say.
1: One outcome is that they try and govern and they fail miserably and uh, that that therefore allows Italy to its cathartic moment of getting this moment of revolt out of their system, but then they can return to to, to more mainstream politics. Another outcome is that uh, the parties themselves are uh, on both sides, both the governing parties and the opposition parties change as a result of this, that the, the Five Star Movement and the Lega um, actually, become more sensible and um, uh, f- actually, uh, you know, govern in a way which doesn't fundamentally threaten the, the either the European Union or uh, you know the the sort of country that Italy wants to be. Or the the third kind of possibility is that they um, are very successful in implementing their, their their policy program, and that Italy does become a much less uh, open, a much uh, more Eurosceptic party and that they they create this sort of template for the whole of the EU to move um, in a a much more anti-immigrant, less sort of uh, open uh, direction. And that would be um, (laughs) a much more frightening scenario. So what do you
0: make of those three scenarios in general and particularly placing them in the German context where we're seeing a a schism develop now between uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel and uh, her interior minister, Horst Schihofer, who's taking an increasingly anti-migrant and populist path. What does the future of populism for Europe look like in your mind?
2: It's hard to say, but I would say... um, uh, they will introduce policies that will not hurt the European project. That's what I think, because because you know, I mean, look at the European project. Look what happened in the past. Everybody predicted that this is not going to survive because the economic the economics doesn't doesn't speak for the European project, and. Um, but then when you looked at the actual behavior of the po- po- political elite, they really tried very hard to save the project in spite of all the, uh, the, of all the headwinds. So I believe, I believe that this is going to happen here too. So even though that, the, uh, that you have now a populist uh, government in Italy, we will we have to see what they are going to do. I mean they already declared they, are for, they, they don't want to get out of the euro so and they, they are for Europe. so so slowly slowly I think uh, the cost of getting out is, is just too high. One of the reasons why populism is there is also because the, 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 the population has not doesn't trust the, 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 the political elite anymore. and why is that? And I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, because if you look at Southern Europe, for instance, in Southern Europe, the story that I'm telling you about Germany does not really apply. Because in Southern Europe, these economies were, were, were exposed to, 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 to a tremendous shock from China, because they basically had a comparative advantage in the same sectors as, as China has. and so. Uh, So in these countries, and and that happened, and then the financial crisis happened. And during the financial crisis, there was these austerity policies. And so you had the trade shock that hit these countries very much. Then you had the austerity policies at the same time. And and now when you look at what did the government do actually to help these people to adjust? And it's very little. I mean, we know that trade shocks have, have... Losers and gainers, and we always say in our textbooks that you have to compensate uh, the, the, the losers. But when you look, when you look at the actual policy, it didn't happen. On and that during a time when there was severe austerity, so it's actually it's actually not surprising that um, it's not that surprising. So given what what hardship already happened in the past. And the strong will of the, the, the political elite to stay with the European project, I think it it's, it's will be hard, but I, I, I think it's going mm. to be there.
0: Well, so the European project is strong, but I think as, as this conversation has illuminated and Germany's experience illustrates that the solutions might be much more complex than we've thought about them uh, up until this point. Yes, Well, I think uh, maybe that's a good place to leave it, and we'll talk uh, solutions next time. But thank you very much for that fascinating overview of of, uh, Germany's economic past and political present.
2: Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: That was Dalia Marine, professor of economics at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, a fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and editor of the new book, Explaining Germany's Exceptional Recovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our newest editorial offering, On Point, available at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.